Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Knock that fire down, 19. Copy, Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This is the Roy Green Show podcast. There is a story that um, has has the province of Ontario talking, and um, we're going to talk about it now. And um, it involves the mayor of Trent Hills, Hector McMillan. He has stage 4 pancreatic cancer, and without immediate high-tech surgery to excise the tumor, he will die, and he'll die quickly. In the United States, the surgery is available in a matter of days. But OHIP, the Ontario Health Insurance Plan, will not pay for the mayor's out-of-province surgery. Joe Warmington wrote in the Toronto Sun that Mayor McMillan tweeted he has been, quote, essentially murdered by a corrupt, rigged political system, end quote, and quoting the mayor again, out-of-country funding program will pay to remove my penis, but not my cancer tumor, end quote. The Ontario Health Minister has responded to the mayor by talking about, I'm reading Joe's column, about giving opportunities to individuals like yourself, particularly life-saving opportunities, refunding out-of-province health care. Opportunities, Mr. Minister. Hmm. But they'll only do it by, quote, decisions based on best practices and science and evidence, end quote. This is the same government which gave the Ontario Teachers Unions $22 million as an unconditional grant with no accountability or control provisions, quote-unquote, according to the Ontario Provincial Auditor General. What did the minister say? Giving opportunities to individuals like yourself, particularly life-saving opportunities, says that's important but only by decisions based on best practices and science and evidence. Again, giving the teachers' unions $22 million with no accountability would be, I guess, best practices. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. With me, uh, Mayor Hector McMillan from Trent Hills, Ontario. He has pancreatic cancer. The province is not going to pay for out-of-province country life-saving surgery, potentially, um, because, uh, as you told us, Mr. Mayor, they're saying it's experimental surgery. They're not satisfied with, uh, with, with what has been already proven to be successful in the U.S., and so they're denying to, uh, to refusing to pay for you to have that surgery in, in, the, uh, in the United States. Joe Warmington uh, with me as well from the Toronto Sun. Joe broke the story about uh, Mayor McMillan, and that has this, this province and that should have the country energized because, Joe, the next person could be any one of us or somebody we deeply care about, and that includes the people who run the government. Well, I, I don't think they would be the ones that you'd worry about. I mean, I, you know, I had people whispering in my ear if Hector would just go and shop around to the right doctor, he could get, uh, you know, something going uh, for himself. So, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Uh, he's not playing the game. He's just trying to do it the right way. If he were to get a sex change, he would you know, move right up the front of the line. So, you know, the, this whole story is not about who's next and all these kinds of things. Actually, what it is is malfeasance and all the people involved in it and the waste and everything else should be taken away and, and put in handcuffs. But I'm not trying to do this scorched earth thing. I'm, I'm sorry. But I just I'm so the more I'm thinking about this story. Um, you know, I did a lot of different stories this week, but I'm sitting here in the commercial break and just feeling so angry about what's happening to Hector and to the other people. I'm really, really sick of people that don't want to think outside of the box and help people, yeah. which is what they're there to do. And you know, Joe, when it comes to cancer, it's uh, it's a very, very personal issue with me because my wife yeah. died of cancer just very recently. So, No, I, I was thinking of that during the break, too, and you know, I, I don't know what was happening with the glitches, but they were playing the show that I was on, 
We're talking about Rob Ford and his cancer. So cancer hits all over the place. It does. The mayor, you know, I know the mayor. Mayor McMillan is the kind of guy that you want running your town. His dad was also the mayor out in Campbellford one time. This family has served this province. You know, everybody serves it in their own way, but there are people that go out and they actually do it. They put the name on the ballot and they do public service, and, and there he is, and we have nothing for him. I mean, my God, we're better than that. Yeah, we should be. Uh, you know, um, Mr. Mayor, the Minister of Health, uh, a doctor himself, as we all know, I'm going to read again what Joe wrote, responded by saying, quote, the difficulty that we face is we live in a society where we both want to give opportunities to individuals like yourself, particularly life-saving opportunities, but at the same time, we want to base our decisions on best practices and science and evidence, quote, unquote, just writing you off. That's right. And what he's saying is that he'll only take the word of the imperial experts who have no idea what IRE nano-knife surgery is all about. So that gives them the out not to pay. And, of course, they're looking to save every dime that they can so they can piss it away elsewhere. They, they, it's going to be generations before they ever pay off our debt, if they ever do. I've got seven grandkids. They're never going to see the end of it. I don't know, but you know, someday I'm fortunate enough to have great grandkids and get to see them, whether they're ever going to see the end of the debt. But the big thing for me, and, and one of the, the thrust of, of what I'm doing and why I'm doing it is because as mayor, I do get opportunities to speak out loud and certain people will listen, especially the media. And thank God for guys like Joe and Pete Fisher and the crew in Balbo and the guys at the Peterborough Examiner, who I'm all friends with because I'm an open book. There's no question anyone can't answer me, and I'll try to answer it for you. And if I can't get the answer, if I don't have the answer, I'll get it for you. So people know me. But I'm just so shocked that they've rigged this system so that the applicant will fail before he even submits the application. And the appeal process is even more mind-boggling. I've been trying to mount the appeal. I've got my papers finally all filled out, and I have to prove to them why their decision was wrong, the way impact used to be. You used to have to tell them why their assessment of your property was wrong. And, and the ombudsman straightened them out on that one. So currently I have to tell them why their, their uh, judgment was wrong, and then I have to fax it all in. So before you fax it in, you have to have a file number. I've requested a file number. I don't get an answer. I don't get a return email. I don't get return phone calls. I leave voice messages. Finally, I get a hold of somebody in Toronto, uh, a young, very polite girl, sounded like she was at least 10, and she says to me, oh, well, we have no record that you called or your email. She finally finds my email and says, oh, well, they haven't got to yours yet. Um, it's going to take two to three weeks for you to get a file number. So under the advice of a professional, they said, submit your application anyway with a cover letter and ask them to, to apply the file number when they, when they finally get around to it. So I've, I've tried to fax it to the office in Kingston, which is very clearly on the application where you're supposed to fax it to, and I get a Bell Canada reply stating the number you have reached is out of service. This is a recording. You talk a little frustrating. Now, the average person on the street who doesn't have the political clout, what little political clout I have, where, where, like I said, where people will listen to me, they're just lost in the shuffle. You know, they just, they're just, they're literally dying. This is so wrong that they're doing this to Ontarians in this day and age. Just deliberately setting us up to fail so that they don't have to pay and writing us off. And Joe, End you say story. that um, you've been told that have been suggested to you that if the mayor were to just play ball and go and find quietly a doctor, that everything just might go away. I've never been, I've never had that suggested to me, and I and don't I had know it, what that. No, no, I'm talking to I'm talking to I'm talking to Joe, Mr. Mayor. Yeah, I had it suggested uh, to me. That's how I understood it, and you know, to go and talk to more doctors to sort of take the minister off the hook on this thing because he's feeling heat on it. He's supposed to be a doctor. You know, interesting that I was on your show a week ago, Sunday, yeah. talking about Gord Downey and all the goodwill that came out of that. Yes. And then we turn around a week later and we have this story. Yes. Uh, look, at I, we've said a lot of things that, that are hurting all of us. I'm sure the listeners are 
thinking of their own loved ones. But what we need is someone to give Mr. McMillan a file number and sit down and talk to him, look him in the eye. Yes. And say, here's what we're going to do. Not what we can't do. We all know what we can't do. What can we do? And no. one thing we can do is raise the, he needs at least 300 grand because he's going to have to recover no matter how tough he thinks he is. It's going to be a recovery. He's going to have to stay in Kentucky. So let's get there. What's the uh, page at now? How much have you raised so far, Mr. Mayor? Well, I had a friend of mine stop by this morning and said that uh, it was somewhere up around twenty-eight or twenty-nine thousand dollars. And, okay, so we get, and they we have since opened. They've, al- they've also opened a uh, a trust account at the uh, local TD branch, and apparently you can make donations from any TD branch in Canada. So I, I have no idea what that is. There's there's two prominent people in town who are have joint. Uh, authority to um, manage the account, and uh, they can only make deposits, and ultimately they'll write one check if, if I get so fortunate. Mr. Mayor, can you give us the um, the information on how everybody listening can contribute? Uh, well, it is on it is on GoFundMe, and you just hit the search bar and um, type in Hector Macmillan, M-E-C-M-I-L-L-A-N, and it'll pop up, and uh, it's there. Okay. Um, now, of course... GoFundMe is a, is a business, and, and, and they, they take 5% cut of all donations. So hence why some people who, who don't want to pay that 5% out of their, of their donation, and, and, and a lot of seniors don't have computer access, the bank account was opened up. Um, if you just give me a sec here, I think I have the information on that. Uh, but it is at TD Bank. And, um, the we'll tweet it out as well, folks. Uh, Hector will, I will, and Roy will. Yes. And uh, if you can't find it, Roy, or, uh, we'll make sure we get it out there. We'll, we'll get it out, Mr. Mayor. We'll get it out for you. TD Branch 2222, and the account number is 6308446. We'll tweet we'll treat all of that out. Um, we have a caller who's has, a, I think, a, a, an interesting, relevant question to ask here. Grace is in Whitby. Hi, Grace. Oh, hi. Thanks, Roy, for taking my call. And my question was, is, <clears throat> you don't have the time to wait. Is there any way that you can have the surgery uh, and we fundraise to get this money for you to have the surgery? Because, you know, it's not a lot of money and your life is worth more than that and we have to just raise the money. And then that's what we were just the government. That's what we were just talking about, the fundraiser. Yes. And how do you spell your name again? It's small M I L L A N. It's M A C M I L L A N. It's L I A A N. Macmillan. Macmillan. Oh, Macmillan. Okay. Macmillan. Just go to go to GoFundMe. Dot com. Okay. And enter his name in the search bar. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much, gentlemen. I. What I'd like to do is open the phone lines for for a few minutes and uh, get some reaction from our listeners across the province and across the country. Can you stay a little longer? I, I can. Joe, you okay? Yeah, I can stay for a minute or so. Uh, to be honest with you, I, I'm with my family, and um, and I think you guys are doing a good job with the callers. Uh, okay, Joe. So why don't I let you guys do it? You're doing a great job. I just want to say this in parting. Uh, I like that suggestion from that woman uh, there, and I want to explore that some more, Hector, if we can stay in touch on this, about getting you the surgery and raising the money later. I think that's an excellent suggestion. That is. Joe, thank you for what you do all the time. Thanks for making us aware of uh, Mayor McMillan. Thank you very much. Good luck, Hector. All right. All the best. Thank you. Joe Warmington, uh, one of the very best from the Toronto Sun. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. So emails are coming into Roy at RoyGreenShow.com. And they're asking, how can I help? Just go to GoFundMe.com. Go to GoFundMe.com and enter Hector McMillan, H-E-C-T-O-R, McMillan, M-A-C-M-I-L-L-A-N. And then you can contribute to the fund for Mayor Hector McMillan, Trent Hills, Ontario, who's fighting pancreatic cancer. Here's an uh, email from Brett to Roy at RoyGreenShow.com. Listening to your interview with the mayor, how he was denied coverage for treatment outside of Canada because the procedure was deemed experimental and not standard in Ontario. 
What gets me is that if it was standard in Ontario, he could go outside the country. But if it was standard, there'd be no need to go outside the country in the first place. The whole thing is a catch-22, writes Brett. Roy at RoyGreenshow.com is the email address. My number's 888-225-8255-416-870-6400. And with me is Mayor Hector McMillan. He's fighting for his life, literally fighting for his life. And the province is denying him the surgery that he requires. How quickly, uh, Mr. Mayor, before I take some calls, AAA 225-8255-416-870-6400, how quickly can they do the surgery for you in the United States? They called me three days ago, Roy, and they checking in to see how I was doing and if I was still on board. And I asked them that question. They said three to four days. So basically, by the time I got my things in order here and packed my bag and, and drove down, They'd be ready there waiting for me with the knife. You know, out of all of this, Roy, the one thing that I, I want to, that I have put in my appeal, if I ever get the chance to, to fax it to him, I may have to drive it to Kingston, I guess. I've, they, they, they actually ask you what you want the minister to do. Now, I know the minister's staff is listening right now because I know how it works. I've been, I've been mayor for 13 years. My father died in the third year of his third term. My grandfather was on council for 25 years, so I know how the system works. And for all those who think that they may have some conspiracy theorist ideas, keep believing because it's right. I know the minister's staff is listening right now, perhaps even the minister himself. So here's what I'd like to say. Dr. Hoskins, this will always be an experimental surgery in Ontario until we start doing it in Ontario. There's already been an investment into purchasing the equipment. I assume you paid for it. The machine is sitting down at the Toronto uh, University Health Network. It's collecting dust on it in a closet somewhere. Other than they used it, I think, a total of 15 times, I understand, for minor work on the liver. You need someone to demonstrate this to Dr. Stephen Gallinger, Dr. Peter Cleary, and all the rest of our Ontario expert surgeons who have not used IRE techniques. I will be your subject. I think we've already raised enough money that we could likely pay Dr. Robert Barton to come up from Louisville, Kentucky, and he could do the surgery in our hospital here, and all of our, our surgeons in Ontario could get a live demonstration. I will be your guinea pig for you. Now, that's a win-win deal for Ontario. It'll cost a whole lot less because I can stay in a Toronto hospital And we'll get this thing off the experimental list. It's a win deal for me. It's a win deal for Ontarians on the, in the budget. And it's a win deal for all the rest of the people that desperately need this surgery and are already going to other countries to get it. You know, Mr. So Mayor, I, I know you're listening, guys. So do something about it and tell the minister that. I'm making that proposal, and I think that's a deal that should never be turned down. You're fighting for your life, and you're pleading for your life. Roy, I've never begged in my life. You have a lot of friends. You have a lot of people who are on your side. And now we need the people in the government to move forward and be on your side. I'll tell you a quick story. A few years ago, when Dalton McGinty was premier, there was a 73-year-old carpenter in northern Ontario who had multiple myeloma. He was also a cancer and he was getting um, uh, thalidomide free from the manufacturer in the United States. And they changed the rules in Canada. And they, uh, they changed the rules and they brought in a new drug. And so they said, well, now you can no longer have the thalidomide. You have to come to uh, Toronto for treatment. I had his doctor on the air. She was furious. It was going to cost him $60,000 he didn't have. So I had the premier on the air. And I said, what are you going to do about this, Premier McGinty? And he said, well, talk to my health minister. I said, no, I'm talking to you right now. What are you going to do about it? Do something today. Commit to doing something today. And he said he would make a phone call. Hector, later that, that day, I got a call from the wife of the, uh, of the 73-year-old carpenter, and they had made an exception, and he was going to get the thalidomide free. So there is, politicians can move mountains, and this is a mountain that's right in front of the minister, and he can move it for you, and he needs to move it for you, my friend. I, I will stay in touch with you, uh, Joe will stay in touch with you, and, and we'll do our very best to get it, get it done, Mr. Mayor. 
I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. And, and for all your listeners, I thank you. I know there's other Ontarians that are in the same boat that I am, but you don't get to hear them because they don't have those opportunities that I have and and know which buttons to push. And I meet so many seniors in in waiting rooms while waiting to get chemotherapy. And right. you know, we're, we get tight when we ask each other what we're using. There's okay. so many other alternatives that can be used. Mr. So Mayor, we'll stay, we'll stay in touch with you. Thanks, Roy. We'll work with you, too. Thank you, sir. Hector McMillan. GoFundMe.com. H-E-C-T-O-R-M-A-C-M-I-L-L-A-N. Or the Ontario government gets off its backside and does what needs to be done. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. So, question now for you. Should all members of Parliament be required to post all expense spending online? All of them. Post their expense spending online. Should that just be a rote requirement for every single member of Parliament. The Liberals again nabbed for dubious expense spending, as you've been hearing this week. The Environment Minister, Catherine McKinnon, hired a freelance photographer for more than $6,000 to take pictures of her working at the COP21 climate conference in Paris. As Rex Murphy points out in the National Post today, the delegation that Mr. Trudeau and... uh, Minister McKinnon took to Paris last November for this climate conference was much larger than that of the United States. I guess they had to prove that Canada was back. Anyway, so the minister, Minister McKinnon, hired a freelance photographer for more than 6000 bucks to take pictures of her to show how studiously she was representing all of us and working hard at the climate conference. So now she says, I'm paraphrasing, well, um, policies have been in place and and we're going to have to look at this. And then Trudeau chimes in, the prime minister. He laments that, quote, longstanding government policies, end quote, cause this and other expense claims. So the rules required them. To hire the photographer for more than 6000 bucks, And the rules require them to hire a limo or whatever it was that the health minister was driving. Of course, Mr. Trudeau himself had to pay back over $800 in unacceptable personal expense claims when he was a liberal opposition member of parliament. At that time, he said it was a procedural problem. I don't know. And the PMO, I don't know what you make of this one, the PMO also redacted the names of the Prime Minister's in-laws and nanny from the passenger manifest when the Prime Minister and family winged off to the Caribbean for their winter vacations in a government challenger jet at $12,000 per hour to run the plane. Why remove the, the names? There's been a lot of debate on social media about this. Well, the fact is, that when you travel in the United States, particularly, you have to be identified. The Americans insist. You can't travel in U.S. airspace or anywhere in the United States unless they know you're there. If you do, you're doing so illegally. So somebody said it was an honest mistake. The in-laws of Mr. Trudeau's names were removed from the passenger manifest and the Nanny's name was removed from the passenger manifest, and after all, the prime minister had paid economy class for all of them, so whose business is it anyway? Maybe that's the bottom line. Maybe that's the bottom line. Whose business is it anyway? It's their expense account. Oh, but it's our money. Now, I didn't think we'd again have to call on my friend Michelle Simpson as quickly as we, as we apparently have to to speak about the issue of MP expenses. You know she's the former Liberal Member of Parliament and former Trudeau seatmate in question period. She's still the only Member of Parliament to have posted her expense spending online. And as you know, because Michelle has told us, she was shunned by MPs generally and punished severely by the Liberal Party for doing what she did. And what she did was the inexcusable offense, Michelle, of sharing with your constituents and all Canadians what you spent your expense money on. 
I'm glad you're back. I'm kind of surprised you're back this quickly. <laughs> well, I'm always delighted to be back, but I just hate the topic in terms of I'm not, I just don't know when these guys are going to get it. That, you know, uh, you know, when you have to start redacting and hiding and bobbing and weaving, you, on a level, you know that what you did was morally wrong as soon as you have to do that. If you spend money straight up, taxpayers' money, and you can defend it, then stand up and defend it. And if you can't, then admit what you've done. Because what happened, as you know, is that Mr. Trudeau standing up to defend, defend his environment minister and that huge contingent he took to Paris and defending his health minister for her, was it a limousine, was it a car, what was it? Defending. Uh, it, uh, well, it turned out to be a Lexus. Yeah. But be that as it may, that actually made it worse, not yeah. better, than a stretch limo, uh, in my mind. But um, he was. But he said, Michelle, yeah. in defending uh, the minister of the environment and defending the health minister, he said he complains that it's long-standing government policies which are the problem. I'm looking for the exact quote here. Um, He said, we have seen over the course of the past months, this is from uh, CBC, we've seen over the course of the past months have noticed many longstanding government policies that we are questioning, and that's certainly one that we're looking at as perhaps not the best use of public funds. He says, talking about the environment ministers paying more than $6,000 to have a photographer track her. You know, to, it, that to me was the most idiotic statement. But when he was making these statements, it was interesting, his speech pattern. He was actually almost stuttering. It was like, um, 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 every other word, um, um. To me, that told me it was indefensible, too. And the other thing he said was, uh, it, one of his quotes was, this this will serve as a reminder of, you know, how important it is to safeguard the taxpayers' money. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, if it weren't so sad, I would have laughed out loud. And I thought, you guys need a reminder. After going through, you know, everything you've gone through in, you know, going back years to when you got booted out of office, for shenanigans like this, like people running around with envelopes of cash, you know, I, I don't know what it's going to take. And I am a liberal, but I, I can't defend any of it. I think it's it's awful. Well, he also, at the time that he was found to have spent more than $800 on unacceptable uh, travel and living expenses, he said it was procedural issues, um, administrative issues, and then he said, the fact that he paid it back shows what a transparent guy he is. They, they only pay <laughs> it back when they get caught. And you know what? That drives me insane, too. The punishment being, oops, you know, it was a clerical error. Here's your money back. And everybody moves on. To me, that's totally unacceptable. And I mean, some of this is small potatoes because we had... Two liberals, uh, you know, a few years back, that between them uh, misused tax- taxpayers' money to the tune of 160000 for actually cheating. Like, they knew the rules, and they cheated on their housing expense. One is still sitting, and the other one, uh, he's gone. Michelle Simpson, former Liberal Member of Parliament, is with me. She, uh, as you know by now, the only MP to post her expenses online and the only MP to be punished for doing so, obviously. Obviously. We have some calls here. Bill is in Whitby, Ontario. Hey, Bill. Hey, Michelle. 
your show, Roy. Thanks, First sir. of all, I have to totally agree with uh, Michelle. I've never heard so many ums and ahs and ahs come from a politician in my life than when Trudeau spoke. And, Michelle, this is no slight against you. But I, and I think I'm a, I stand for a lot of Canadians, basically think that most politicians get into politics for self-serving reasons. And this is never going to change. And I, I expect more than, well, we'll have to look into this. They're confusing laws, they're confusing rules. I expect more from supposedly intelligent people that we elect to politics that don't know the the choice between right and wrong. Couldn't agree with you more. You know, and I'm sorry. I, I you know, like eleven thousand dollars. Don't people have cell phones with 4D on? They could be taking pictures, and the only exactly. pictures taken were of her or staffers exactly. that could take the pictures. You know, why are we not just talking about what happened? They cheated. Well, that's exactly they it, cheated. Roy. Pure and simple. They cheated. Has anyone seen one of those pictures, Roy? I saw a picture of her in, an, in, in, in online somewhere. She looked like could have been anywhere. She was sitting at a conference table, and she was leaning forward. So there's the "I'm paying attention" pose, and that's worth six well, grand. I, 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 I haven't seen one. Not in a newspaper. Nowhere. Well, you know, it may be in the. Um, I, I think. I think one of the reasons they did it, they wanted to show an example. Of what was what was done, but what does it prove? What does it matter? What does it mean, Bill? Hey, Roy. Well, one last point was, and for the for the uh, the Minister of Health, the whole Lexus issue. Yeah, that reminded me of Bill Clinton back with the uh, defined sex to me. Like, it, it all depends on what the meaning of the word is. Exactly. Is. Embarrassing. Thanks for the call, Bill. Take, take care. All the best, Teresa, in Calgary. Hey, Teresa. Well, you can't fault the cabinet ministers. They're just following the example being set by their boss. After all, this is the guy who stuck taxpayers for the cost of his two high-priced nannies, even though he's very wealthy and had no problems paying for them himself before he became prime minister. He takes all his in-laws and family members, including Mummy, on that state visit to Washington last fall at taxpayers' expense. I, I don't know. He may have paid for their, uh, yeah. their their fair economy class. He did He did pay for the in-laws and the nanny on the Caribbean Yeah, but, excursion. Um, but according to what I've heard, uh, taxpayers picked up the tab, according to the rebel anyways. They also reported uh, on that flight to Paris last fall, he uh, blew something like $140,000 in taxpayers' money on booze for himself, and his friends, and his cronies. I don't know about that, but yeah. it'd have to be. That, there's another serious example of binge drinking. If that happened, there's Teresa <laughs> Calgary. Triple A two two five eight two five five four one six eight seven zero sixty four hundred. The number is to call on the Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. 6000 bucks for a t- photographer to follow you around in Paris. Um, and uh, then there's the car issue with the health minister. And one of the reasons, I think, Michelle, that uh, the prime minister was waffling and blaming policy is he remembers very well that he was caught as an MP, as we pointed out earlier, claiming expenses that he couldn't, wasn't allowed to claim and had to pay back, and then said, well... Like I said before, just proves what an what an open book I am, what a refreshing change of air that I am. I'm open, really. And isn't that the same defense too? This oh well policy and it's you know, it's kind of blurry, blah 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 that Duffy used. And who reeled about, you know, the Senate expenses more than the Liberals, you know? about the abuse there. And now they're using this, and I, I do not accept, oh, well, the previous governments have done it. You know, it, it, seriously, that is the most juvenile, it, it, idiotic defense I've ever it is. It's just a, simply a case of you know what's ethically appropriate and acceptable, and you know what isn't. You know what is business, and you know what isn't. You know what you should be doing and what you shouldn't be doing. And if you sign on a photographer to follow you for six uh, 6000 bucks in Paris, that's abuse of taxpayers' money. It's not about procedure. It's not about policy. It's about cheating. It's cheating. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Massive earthquake in Italy. Hundreds of lives lost. Towns destroyed. Villages. Which have stood for hundreds of years. How could that happen? And how safe is Canada from those quakes? By the way, today is um, National Mourning Day, Day of Mourning in Italy. It's terrible, and our condolences to everyone in, in Italy and the Italian-Canadian community. And, and what is our situation in this country when it comes to fault lines? 
and the threat of earthquake. Dr. John Cassidy is research scientist and international earthquake expert with the Geological Survey of Canada. He's joined me many times on this program. We talked about these terrible occurrences. Dr. Cassidy, thank you for the time and thanks for being so flexible. We have, um, because of things that happened, about six minutes uh, to talk to you. In layman's terms, what happened? Why was this so destructive in an area where earthquakes are frequent? And why did this Italian quake destroy buildings that have survived since the Middle Ages? Uh, good questions, Roy, uh, as always. And, and the, the reason is, it was a combination of reasons. It's the size of this earthquake, which at, at 6.2 is a very large earthquake. Uh, it's the shallowness of the earthquake. It was within, within a few kilometers of the surface. And it's the proximity to, to these communities that we, we see have been devastated. So it, it, it's really that combination. And uh, it's not unique to Italy. Um, you know, the same thing in Christchurch when you have a, a, a large earthquake very, very close to, to an urban center. Uh, there will be substantial damage, and uh, it, it's, so it's a combination of the size, the location, the depth, and the type of buildings in, in the region. The perfect, not the perfect storm, but the perfect earthquake for this it kind was, of situation. Tragic. It, it situation. is. We, you know, these are these are all when you have a large earthquake like this uh, near near cities, and especially near a lot of old buildings. Uh, those are the types of structures that are most susceptible to earthquake shaking. Dr. Cassidy, what about Canada and particularly British Columbia, uh, which we continuously hear, or continually hear, is in a perilous quake zone, the Cascadia zone. What does this country look like as far as concerns for major quakes is concerned? Right. We've had large earthquakes across Canada from coast to coast to coast, from the east coast off of Newfoundland through the Arctic off of... um, uh, up in the Baffin Bay region, the um, Yukon, Northwest Territories, and all through British Columbia, and also in Quebec and, and eastern Ontario, we've seen earthquakes the size of, of and, and certainly much larger in, in many areas, larger than this recent Italian earthquake. Um, off of the west coast, we have the active plate boundary. This is where giant tectonic plates meet, where they're colliding and sliding past one another. This is exactly the same setting as Japan and Chile and Mexico. Uh, It's the setting where where the world's largest earthquakes occur and and where the most frequent large earthquakes occur. So so we know off of Vancouver Island, for example, magnitude 9 earthquakes have struck in the past, and we know that magnitude 7 to 7.3 earthquakes have occurred uh, beneath Vancouver Island. Um, In eastern Canada, we've seen magnitude 6 and 7 earthquakes as well. And so uh, earthquake hazards, uh, this, this is a concern across the country. And in eastern Canada, we have a lot of old buildings, and we know that waves travel much more effectively. They travel to greater distances uh, than in western Canada. So uh, both east and west um, parts of Canada uh, have significant earthquake hazard. In about 30 seconds, Dr. Cassidy, are we getting better at predicting quakes at all? Uh, not, uh, it's a really challenge, a huge challenge to predict earthquakes. We're getting better at understanding where earthquakes are more likely to occur, how often and how large. We're incorporating a lot of uh, new types of data from GPS to images of the seafloor and lake bottoms. So we're getting a much better image of what to expect in the future during, uh, during earthquakes that, that will happen at some point in the future. And this information is all folded into our national building codes that's what really makes a difference during earthquakes is uh, having modern building codes and and having uh, a knowledge of what to expect during future earthquakes. Yeah. Dr. Cassidy, thank you. You're most welcome. Thank Always you. great Bye. talking to you. Thanks. Dr. John Cassidy is a research scientist and international earthquake expert with the Geological Survey of Canada. We're back in a minute. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. So a university, I want to share this with you, a University of Virginia lacrosse player was sentenced to 23 years in prison for the murder of his girlfriend. Both had been binge drinking, and the lacrosse player says he's innocent. And uh, some odd things happened prior to um, the trial. Uh, George Hughley, I think that's the correct way to pronounce his name. Now, binge drinking at universities has been in the news, of course, since Brock Turner made international headlines when the Stanford University student was stopped in the act of raping an unconscious woman who was said to have been at a um, a binge drinking at a party. 
Joining us on the show is Matthew D. Green. He's the lawyer who represents the University of Virginia lacrosse player, George Hughley, who was convicted of uh, the murder of his girlfriend, Yearly Love. Uh, Mr. Green, thank you very much for the time. Am I pronouncing uh, your client's name correctly? Uh, yes, you are, and thanks for having me on. Good to talk to you. Now, we're all aware of the Brock Turner case, and Stanford University uh, student who sexually assaulted a young woman, too drunk to properly comprehend what was happening to her, um, and certainly too, young, too drunk to defend herself. Turner was stopped in the act of raping this young woman by two university students, received that outrageously short sentence of six months. He blames the situation on binge drinking. And Stanford University took steps this week, which the university claims will help lessen the chaotic reality of binge drinking. Stanford effectively banning undergraduates from drinking any spirits on campus and banning graduate students from drinking hard liquor at campus parties unless they mix their drinks. So that's been derided by, um, by m- many students and declared as um, totally a, in a, in a, you know, in ineffective or ineffective by others. Before we speak about your client and his prison sentence and what took place, which led to the murder conviction, please speak to the issue of binge drinking at universities. Well, um, you know, obviously I think the vast majority of college students in the United States and Canada Uh, do not have drinking problems. Most of them probably do not drink to excess regularly. But we've certainly all seen enough headlines that it is a real issue, and I think colleges are correctly being proactive about it. And obviously the Brock Turner case, uh, absolute horrific crime uh, with the sentence not commiserate with the crime. Um, And, you know, unfortunate that a young man who, who may or may not have had a binge drinking problem but is in using that as some kind of an excuse uh, for his own intentional acts. And, um, and, you know, you can see why Stanford wanted to do something. Now, whether or not they this is the correct response, that's certainly subject to debate. Yeah. One of the Stanford students says the problem isn't the binge drinking culture. The problem is the rape culture. How, do, how does the law treat young people, university students, who commit serious crimes while under the influence of alcohol? Is that ever a consideration for the... Um, for chords. Uh, well, I, I mean, it, it can if somehow the fact of the drunkenness is one of the factors that um, goes into usually the sentence. Uh, typically, that's not going to be a factor in whether someone's guilty or not. Being drunk is not a defense uh, to, to a specific crime, but it can in some states be a factor in the sentence the individual would receive. All right, Mr. Green, tell us about your client, Mr. Hughley, and you can go to the web uh, website, truthforgeorge.com. He's in prison following the death of the fellow student, his girlfriend. Uh, I understand they had an on-and-off relationship at the University of Virginia. Um, she was yearly love, and she and Mr. Hughley um, had grown, had a relationship that was said to have grown increasingly tumultuous. What does that mean? Well, you know, as with a lot of uh, older adolescents, college students um, starting to have serious relationships for the first time, there can be a lot of what people will use the term drama. Uh, George and Yardley, it was certainly true in their case. Uh, And, you know, they never had any kind of physical violence or anything like that. But when one or both of them were drunk, they at times would have heated words and frankly have conversations that uh, could be labeled as petty or immature. May 2nd, 2010, your client and Ms. Love had been drinking, I understand, but not at the same place. So what condition were they in when they met, when they met up? Uh, well, uh, we, we know Yardley's condition quite well because uh, she passed away two hours after their encounter, and the autopsy report shows a blood alcohol content of 0.18, which in the Commonwealth of Virginia where this took place is over twice the legal limit to operate a motor vehicle. Uh, Mr. Hughley, by all accounts, had had somewhere over 40 alcoholic beverages in the 30 hours before this event. It includes both the night before him sleeping off some of it, waking up still drunk, continuing to drink all day. His blood alcohol content was somewhere north of 0.35. So they both were highly intoxicated, and and he was off the charts intoxicated. What happened uh, that day? How how did they get together, and how did the day end, according to your client? And and how would he know how the day ended if he was that intoxicated? 
Right. Well, we actually have a very detailed timeline of his his events because he was uh, almost never alone that entire time. So his roommates and, and teammates and people he was with describe him drinking, describe him drunk all day. Uh, there was a very brief time where a couple of his roommates he was with, for about 15 minutes, they actually left to go buy more beer, left him at the apartment. We know that he then went uh, to the uh, apartment building that was just a block, or half, sorry, half a block away where his girlfriend lives. The lady that lived in the apartment below hers saw him enter her apartment, saw her, her, him leave eight minutes later, and during that eight minutes, the only sound she heard was an extremely loud thud, which she described as a heavy bookcase hitting the floor. Uh, when the police arrived, there was no indication of any overturned furniture, that the apartment was essentially very neat. The only thing was there was a, a Yardley Love who had passed away. What we think happened was the two of them were having, uh, you know, an emotional conversation on her bed. At some point, they fell together and landed on the floor with unfortunately 220 pounds of George Hughley landing on Yardley Love's head. The facial injuries to her head are very limited. There's essentially one on the right side of her chin and then a second one to the right eye socket. Um, they typically wouldn't think of them as fatal injuries and not the type of injuries that you would sustain if someone had intentionally struck you. Uh, but we think somewhere in that those, those injuries caused um, small amounts of bleeding, hemorrhaging inside the brain. George didn't appreciate the fact that, that this individual had suffered life-threatening injuries, puts her back in the bed and leaves her, and unfortunately she expires about two hours later. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Matthew D. Green is with me, lawyer who represents a University of Virginia lacrosse player, George Hughley, who was convicted in the murder of his girlfriend, Yardley Love. Mr. Green, I was just thinking about the amount of alcohol that they had both consumed. She was 0.18. He's 3.35. I don't know how, I don't know how Mr. Hughley, your client, stayed on his feet, was able to be, you know, mobile with that level, that amount of alcohol, but he's at the apartment. They have those eight minutes together. There's a loud thud, as you explained. They were on the bed, and you surmise that they fell off the bed, and he fell on top of Ms. Yardley, or Ms. Love, and and she, she subsequently died because blood vessels were broken in the brain, and that's what took her life. When police arrived at the apartment to talk to your client and took him to the police station, how did that go? Well, uh, um, he had gone back to his own apartment um, and had an interaction with his roommates. He then goes to bed for the uh, evening. About six hours later, they come. They tell him they're investigating an assault. Uh, he agrees, you know, voluntarily to go to the police station. Um, they ask him point blank, you know, what happened, what he remembered. He uh, waived his right to an attorney. He gave a statement for well over an hour. They videotaped all of it. Uh, you know, he, fr- he frankly, to the extent he remembered things, he told them. There were a few things based on his degree of intoxication he was had a fuzzier memory on, but he, he admitted that he'd been there, uh, admitted uh, you know, that they'd been on the bed and then they fell to the floor. Uh, and then after they get all the information they're looking for, they tell him that he's dead, and it's quite clear that uh, his reaction, uh, you know, he had no idea that she'd sustained any kind of fatal injury. It's complete shock, disbelief. He cries uh, upon learning that, that she's passed away. Um, so that's how it went. So uh, then later there was an affidavit which went to media. There was a, an issue with that. There was a Q&A session between the media and the chief of police, both of which I believe you argue hardly uh, accurately and ultimately represented the interests of your client. Right. Well, I, I don't know why the, the, the chief Longo, the chief of the police at the time for the city of Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, he went on the media within about 12 hours uh, of George's interview and said that it was the worst crime scene he'd ever seen. Uh, we now know he never once went to Yarley Love's apartment. Um, there was a, a big description. Um, I don't know if somehow falsely leaked to, leaked to the media that this somehow had been a bloody crime scene. It was not a bloody crime scene. The injuries that killed her uh, were not bloody. Uh, she did lightly tear her upper lip, uh, but it was primarily saliva uh, mixed with a small amount of blood that was on her pillowcase and essentially just there. 
the media was really hamstrung in reporting this because within the first 24 hours, the prosecutor elected to seal the entire record. So they were left with very false and incomplete initial information and really nothing in addition for the next two years before it went to trial. So, and we have about two minutes here. In February 2012, Mr. Hughley is convicted of second-degree murder. He'd been charged with first-degree murder, sentenced to 23 years in prison. Just months later, the parents of Ms. Love launch the $30 million wrongful death civil suit against Mr. Hughley. And as I understand, in the last year and a half, uh, Mrs. Love, the mother of Yardley Love, filed a brief in court stating she believes Mr. Hughley had no intention of harming her daughter. How does this all fit? Well, I, I, I mean, I think uh, Yarley Love's mother, Sharon Love, gets it exactly right. Um, I mean, there's no evidence that this was an intentional act. In addition, George was so unbelievably drunk, as you and I have discussed, his ability to really understand his actions uh, is highly questioned. George would be the first to tell anyone that he's legally responsible for what happened, both in a criminal context and a civil context. But there's a difference between, say, manslaughter and intentional murder, and we think these actions uh, are clearly manslaughter. Sharon, loves, Sharon Love seems to agree with that. Um, I think you know she would have to speak for herself, but George is the beneficiary of a $6 million insurance policy, and that insurance coverage will be there if this is determined to be an accident. If the determination is that this is an intentional criminal act, there would be no insurance coverage. All right. Now, the 30 seconds we have left, what happens now? Does this all somehow come full circle to engaging college binge drinking as an issue again? Uh, well, I mean, we'll have a civil trial. A second jury will have a chance to look at the facts. And, um, you know, George is certainly drunk. That will play a role in their determination. But, you know, ultimately, if you get drunk, you're, you're responsible for those actions. And, and I don't think um, I mean, George, George would agree with that. Uh, Mr. Green, thank you very much for sharing the time. It's a, it's a disturbing story. It's a s- sad story, and uh, someone died, and we'll see how this, how this progresses. There's a message here as well. Thanks very much for your time. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Take care. Bye-bye. Matthew Green from uh, Virginia. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.